Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Today on the show, as part of our series on the reservation housing shortage, we'll find out why it's so hard for Wyoming's tribes to build new homes. In the business I'm in, you never have all the funds or resources you need because they're all competitive. A new school year is underway, and with it comes a debate over athletic funding at the University of Wyoming. I think they'll fund athletics before they'll fund academics here. Thanks to new technology, fire lookout towers aren't as common as they used to be. We'll hear from the few remaining people who staff them. It's peaceful. I'm on top of the world. I have the best office in the world. We'll also hear about how both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton plan to win over energy state voters. Join us for those stories and more on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Melody Edwards. Many programs on the University of Wyoming campus are facing budget cuts, but there are those who believe that academics is suffering more than it should. That's especially when compared to athletics. In public forums, several faculty and staff members say they want athletics de-emphasized at the university. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck took a look at the athletic department budget and has this report. This is last year's Colorado State football game. It was part of a dismal 2-10 Wyoming football season. When you have that kind of year, it's not a surprise that people might want to reduce your budget, especially when the head coach makes a million dollars and the athletics department is building a $41 million nutrition and training center. Dr. Robin Hill has been part of the UW philosophy department for many years and graduated from UW. Hill remembers when there was not so much emphasis on winning. I wish we had athletics at that level now, rather than uh, importing very expensive players and facilities and equipment and nutrition centers and staff. Hill says she understands that many in the state put a lot of importance on UW athletics, but that troubles her. I just think that this, this trend is leading us in, in a bad direction. Hill's concerns are more moderate than others. Some want athletics at UW whacked, while others think de-emphasizing football is the way to go. University of Wyoming Athletics Director Tom Berman says college athletics is important. We should take a cut. We should participate in these reductions. But I also get offended when someone says we're not really part of the university's mission. Berman says athletics brings a diverse student body to campus, its teams provide much-needed PR for UW, and it gives the state a reason to rally around the university. We bring dollars to UW. I believe we are a critical element to the university's visibility around Wyoming and around the region. We do some really good things for the University of Wyoming, and and a few disgruntled uh, employees aren't going to bring us down. UW Athletics gets about $10 million out of UW's general fund. 
the College of Arts and Sciences, Agriculture, Engineering, as well as the Physical Plant and Library all get more. Athletics also gets about $2 million in student fees. The legislature provides matching money specifically for the athletics department. If UW raises up to $4 million, that money is matched dollar for dollar. During this fiscal downturn, that was controversial spending. Senator Jeff Wasserberger was among those who opposed it. I don't see us getting a great deal of return for our sports. And I would submit to this body that maybe we shouldn't be in Division One. And I'm not sure how much longer we can afford to have this luxury. Earlier this summer, UW President Lori Nichols noted that while athletics is responsible for two-thirds of its own budget, it may need to raise even more money. If they want to maintain the budget they have today, and if they want to drive excellence, we're going to need more private support. That clearly makes athletics director Tom Berman nervous, but he says a winning football team would help. If we can turn football in the next two years from a 2-10 and ten team to a 7-5 and five team, which, which is, I think, very doable, it changes the whole dynamic of, of, our, of our revenue stream. I think we're talking a million to a million and a half dollars in, in new dollars that aren't available to us today. That's if they remain a Division I football team. Last season, the football team earned $2 million despite winning only two games. That surplus goes towards paying for the rest of the teams in the department. If Wyoming dropped down a level, the football team would lose important revenue that's earned from some of the teams they play, which, by the way, will land the Cowboys on national television nine times. Wyoming already lost a bundle of money when Texas Christian... Brigham Young and Utah left the conference and stopped playing them. And if Wyoming dropped a level in football, it would be forced to leave the Mountain West Conference in all sports. And Berman says their best bet would be to join the smaller Big Sky Conference. The Mountain West Conference, we get a little over $3 million a year in television and other revenue dollars that come to UW Athletics. In the Big Sky, they get $100,000 a year. Generally, when teams drop a level, they come racing back because the revenue loss was that great. Berman argues the same thing would happen here. He also doubts that many in the state would stand for dropping down a level in football, and UW professor Robert Sprague agrees. He's part of a committee recommending additional budget cuts at UW. While Sprague thinks the department is tone-deaf when it comes to cuts other programs on campus are facing, he figures any attempt to scale back football wouldn't go very far. You know, fundamentally it comes down to a question, can we afford to stay at that level? And I, my personal feeling is I think the legislature is going to make sure one way or the other they can. <laughs> so I think they'll fund athletics before they'll fund academics here. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Overcrowding in homes on the Wind River Reservation is a real problem. In the early 2000s, the number of homes with more than six people living in them grew by almost 10% there. 
And the reason is there just aren't enough houses on the reservation. And as Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports as part of her series on the reservation housing shortage, there are a lot of hurdles for how housing developments are funded. In the heart of the town of Fort Washakie on the Wind River Reservation, workers are putting the finishing touches on the Tygee Village, a low-income tribal housing development. Brian Mann is the deputy director of the Eastern Shoshone Tribal Housing Authority, and he's showing me around. Do you mind if we walk over and kind of take a closer look at this uh, community center? I don't know if we'll okay. be needing hard hats here, but... I know, I, I think we're out of the hard hats. So. Okay. Mann says it's taken years to get the money to demolish the old housing development that was full of asbestos and lead paint and build this new one. Twenty stylish single-family homes are arranged in a modern neighborhood. Eight families have already moved in. We tiptoe through the construction zone to the community center in the middle of the cul-de-sac. The building has a round front with the um, nearly floor-to-ceiling windows. You know, the, in Native culture, the circle represents many things in the circle of life, and we try to implement that here. The plan is to host events and classes here for the whole tribe, but renting a house at Tygee Village won't be easy. There are over 60 families on the waiting list right now. The waiting list can take years, and it, when you look at the list, some people have submitted applications in the early 2000s and the mid-2000s. The list got even longer as the process of funding the new development went on year after year. And the main challenge was finding the dollars to make the Taigi project happen. That literally took two years of financial um, review. Mann says applications for housing projects like this one are often highly competitive, pitting tribal housing projects against state ones. And the federal scoring process is often biased against rural housing projects. You have to have a project that is within so many miles of conveniences, including stores, schools, access to health care, community facilities. The closest cities to the reservation are Riverton and Lander, both small, under 10,000 people. Mann says after two attempts, the Eastern Shoshone finally succeeded at getting a $2.7 million low-income tax credit project, which gives investors 10 years of tax credits in exchange for money for low-income housing projects. And they've used successes like that one to leverage more capital. In 2014, they received a total of $6.4 million to build and remodel low-income housing for the tribe. Now, the northern Arapaho is waiting to hear whether their proposed black coal housing project can get those same low-income tax credit funds. In the business I'm in, you never have all the funds or resources you need because they're all competitive. That's northern Arapaho tribal housing director Patrick Goggles. Goggle says his tribe is growing, and with 60% of his population now under the age of 20, they need to build bigger homes that can accommodate the cultural family traditions of the tribe. Homes with many bedrooms and bathrooms where multiple generations can live comfortably. He says most of the grants and loans available are only for low-income homes, not working class. There's your workforce, and they're pretty much the backbone of the northern Arapaho tribe. Because they're the workers, whether they're a single or a dual family income, that take care of the relatives. Leslie Wright is deputy director of the Wyoming Community Development Authority, the state agency that approves applications like the Low Income Tax Credit Program on behalf of the federal government. She says her agency doesn't have a good way to gauge the true housing needs of Wyoming in general, let alone the reservation. 
They only know there's a need when developers approach them with proposals. But most developers suggest projects for the upper income bracket. Federal programs help cover lower income needs, but there's a gap in the middle, right where those backbone workers fall. That gap has been really difficult to fill, and gosh, I wish we, I wish we knew how to do that. Technically, the government is obligated to figure out how to do that. In 1998, Congress passed the Native American Housing Assistance and Self-Determination Act, which promises tribes, quote, affordable housing in safe, healthy environments. The Native American program through Housing and Urban Development prides itself on using a formula developed in collaboration with tribes to fund some of its housing projects rather than the usual competitive approach. Heidi Frechette is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for HUD's Native American program in Washington, D.C. She says the problem is inflation has been eating away at the $650 million a year appropriated to keep up with Native housing needs. And with the aging housing stock, we're finding that folks are using more and more of their funds to rehab or repair existing homes and have less buying power and ability to um, construct new homes. Northern Arapaho Patrick Goggles says quality housing for all economic levels of the Native community is fundamental. And it's not just because the feds are legally obligated to tribes. As a matter of fact, I'm a federal taxpayer. I expect the federal government to allocate federal dollars to this reservation because I pay those federal taxes. Uh, That's a given for me. The Northern Arapaho find out if their black coal housing project qualifies for the low-income tax credit funding later in September. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. In an upcoming story, Melody Edwards will address how the housing shortage has led to homelessness on the reservation. When we come back, we'll look at the future of the National Park Service as it celebrates its centennial. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Caroline Ballard. The National Park Service celebrated its 100th year of existence recently. Now, the beloved federal agency is trying to figure out how to make it through the next century while keeping the national parks unimpaired for future generations. Penny Preston reports some are concerned new funding sources may put corporate logos in the parks. 144 years after Yellowstone National Park was established, people from around the world still gasp and cheer when Old Faithful erupts. Yellowstone was created by an act of Congress in 1872. It was not only America's first national park, it was the world's first national park. I was uh, 57 years old at the creation of the national parks. That was Theodore Roosevelt, or actually Joe Wiegand of Manitou Springs, Colorado, presenting as Theodore Roosevelt at a Yellowstone news conference on the National Park Service's 100th anniversary. He made it clear people are often mistaken about his part in the park story. He did not help create Yellowstone National Park. I was 13. That's how old I was when I got my glasses. (laughs) But the former president did create five national parks during his administration and acted to protect Yellowstone and dedicated the famous arch in Gardner, Montana. 
That was 1903, April 4th, 1903, and I had just emerged from a two-week holiday camping beneath the canvas. Several thousand people gathered under the Roosevelt Arch August 25th, 2016, to celebrate the National Park Service's centennial. The event featured Secretary of the Interior Sally Jewell and National Park Service Director John Jarvis, who painted a dark picture of the service's present and future. We're facing a $12 billion maintenance backlog. The uh, organization itself has gotten smaller um, as a result of sort of chronic underfunding. Jarvis compared the National Park Service's centennial situation to its financial status during the 50th anniversary. The National Park Service in the post-war era was chronically underfunded, very little political support, and um, you know many of the parks have been closed. Jarvis pointed to a mid-century public private campaign that helped save the national parks. Mission 66 was see the USA in your Chevrolet. So Jarvis said the Park Service has started a new campaign, Find Your Park, to engage new audiences, especially millennials. And he is loosening funding regulations to bring in more money. As we went into the centennial, um, we sought out uh, corporate uh, and private philanthropy. That brought questions of concern from members of the press. Are our parks good names being sold to the highest bidder? We didn't offer and nor would we accept the renaming of facilities or uh, you know, logos or billboards or any of that. You, you got to trust us that we're not doing that. Yellowstone Superintendent Dan Wink added. Projects are not done because a donor want something done. Projects are done because it's our priority and then we seek funding to get that project done. Then President Roosevelt, AKA actor Joe Wiegand, chimed in. If those same efforts were attempted to go through the appropriations process uh, in Congress, I don't believe that the opportunity to implement good programs would be as efficiently done. Funding is just one of the big challenges that faced the National Park Service in its second century. Record crowds, including some international visitors, challenge park roads, toilets, delicate thermal features, and even the animals. Director John Jarvis. We're experiencing folks that are not accustomed to being in wild places and following the rules. Then there's climate change. The national parks and adjacent forests in Wyoming are on fire right now. Fires are burning uh, as, as much as a month longer uh, in fire season. Um, they're burning uh, hotter. And the snow and ice is melting. Our scientists predict within 20 or 25 years there will be no glaciers in Glacier National Park. If the future seems bleak for America's national parks, we might look back to the history of the first national park, Yellowstone. Center of the West historian Jeremy Johnston and Cody says there was no funding at the beginning. None. There's accounts of, you know, for example, one group of market hunters that killed over 2,000 animals in just one season. And the delicate thermal features? The early visitors would carve their names into the geothermal formations. They would take their trash and they'd throw it in Old Faithful Geyser just to see it shoot up in the air. So Yellowstone and the National Park Service have survived unbelievable challenges. Maybe they will again. From Yellowstone, Penny Preston for Wyoming Public Radio.
Yellowstone has seen several large fires this summer, and crews are using everything at their disposal to manage them. Fighting wildfires increasingly relies on new technology like drones and a web program that traces every lightning strike in real time. But in the Black Hills of northeastern Wyoming, the most basic of technology is still relied on, the human eye. Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen visited some of the few remaining fire lookout towers in the state. Warren Peak Lookout Tower is six miles northwest of Sundance. It's about 6,700 feet, and it's breezy. That's the wind whipping around the tower. Karen Malloy is the lookout for Warren Peak. It's her 11th season. She's worked at towers across the country. Her first assignment was in college. I loved it. I mean, it was a primitive tower. We had like two visitors all summer long. Had my son, my pack of dogs. We hiked all the time. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. But finding tower jobs isn't as easy as it once was. Wyoming used to have more than 12 active towers. Now there are three, two of which are in the Black Hills National Forest. The main reason for the drop is because of changes in technology. But that technology can be expensive and is not always reliable. But humans, on the other hand, are still an accurate and direct way to detect fire. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Barb Peterson is Karen Malloy's neighbor. She operates Cement Ridge Lookout, which is just east of Warren Peak Lookout. She and Malloy work at least five days a week at their towers, more if there are active fires. The tools they use are simple. Binoculars, spotting scopes, maps, and two-way radios. You know, you do a lot of your lookout duties when you're looking around your train just with your natural eye. When they do spot smoke, they also use a tool called the Firefinder. It, too, is not the most advanced technology. It was first developed in the 1920s, but it's still quite accurate. Peterson says she can then relay to fire crews the location of the smoke within minutes of a fire starting. It doesn't take much, does it? No. And it works. It's real effective. The job is about more than spotting fires. Weather in the Black Hills can change quickly, and Malloy says sometimes it can be extreme. We had a red flag day. County was all burning up, and I clocked sustained of 77 and gusts to 92, so nothing really phases me after that summer. The sweeping views from the tower give lookout staff a unique awareness of incoming weather. Depending on conditions, they collect weather data every hour. And that data isn't just useful to fire crews. Loggers or archaeologists working in the area can't always see severe weather rolling in. But Peterson says she can. All they have to do is tell me that, you know, Barb, I'm going to be working over here in Pole Cabin this afternoon. Would you keep an eye on the weather for me? Yeah, absolutely. What kind of lead time you need in order to get out? The Black Hills are also a popular tourist spot. Both Warren Peak and Cement Ridge Towers are accessible by gravel road, and that means thousands of people come to see the views. Malloy says she often spends part of her day teaching visitors about the history of the area, almost like a park ranger. You get to meet so many cool people. I try to get folks to sign my register. I tell them no one ever looks at it but me. I've had people from England up this summer. I had a girl from Tibet up here one summer. But when there aren't any visitors, the wind has died down, and staff is caught up on lookout duties, it's quiet. Peterson says that's partly what attracted her to the job. I really like solitude. I like peace and quiet. I like um, being out in the outdoors and just listening um, to 
what's happening and usually there's not too much going on but you know every once in a while you hear a bird squawk or a coyote. Malloy says the job is sometimes stressful but not always. It's peaceful. I'm on top of the world. I have the best office in the world. For now the towers are staffed. Cement Ridge just celebrated the 75th anniversary of its finished construction but as technology continues to evolve the towers may not be here 75 years from now. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. When we come back, we'll hear how both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton plan to win over voters in energy states. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Melody Edwards. Bankruptcies and layoffs plague the coal industry from West Virginia to Wyoming. But in one place, on the northern plains, coal's still alive and well. That's in North Dakota, where power plants burn a different kind of coal than in other parts of the United States. And coal still provides 75% of the state's electricity needs. Yet even the industry there feels mounting pressure. Inside Energy's Amy Sisk has more. From Stan Burling's house at the end of Main Street, it's a minute walk to downtown Hazen. The street sports a thriving business community in this town of 2400. There's a drugstore, an insurance company, a Chevy car dealer. Power plants surround Hazen along with the coal mines that feed them. They support the local economy. About half the residents work in the industry or in a related job. I mean, they buy their vehicles here, groceries and I'll support the local retail businesses. Burling is a control room operator at the coal-fired power plant down the highway. Um, I work for Base Electric Power Cooperative at their Leland Old Station. The plant turns lignite coal into electricity like all but one of the state's eight coal plants. Lignite is a soft coal, more plant than rock, and it doesn't burn as hot as older, denser coals, which means power plants have to burn more of it to generate the same amount of electricity. That might seem like a disadvantage, but there's only one power plant that's recently announced it will shut down in North Dakota, and it's the one that doesn't burn lignite. Yeah, it wasn't a surprise, but it's still, still really... <laughs> wasn't exactly the thing I wanted to open a, the paper and see. It's the first market casualty to hit coal country in North Dakota. Nationwide, more than 250 generators at coal plants were retired from 2010 to 2014. The closure next door concerns lignite workers like Burling. There's a lot of people are like, oh, this is how it's going to start. Start a statewide coal shutdown. But so far, the rest of North Dakota's coal plants and mines have held steady. The lignite industry here says its resilience lies in the way it operates. At the center mine 30 miles southeast of Hazen, the coal's dumped onto trucks. They haul it just a couple miles to the plant. 
For most of the country's coal-powered plants, transportation is 40% of the costs. Lignite plants are cheaper to run because they're built right next to the mines. It's really more like a marriage. Wade Basance is president and general manager of BNI Energy, which owns the center mine. He says mines work closely with the neighbor utilities. They've agreed to work together for 30 or 40 or even more years. Elsewhere, natural gas is often to blame for the demise of the coal industry, but it's not widely used for electricity in North Dakota. Here, our economic challenge is wind. That's Jason Borer, president and CEO of North Dakota's Lignite Energy Council. He's referring to the boom in wind farms across North Dakota over the past decade. Wind turbines now generate nearly 18 percent of the state's electricity mix. That's up from 1 percent a decade ago. That was one of the factors leading to the decision to shut down the coal-fired power plant. Other factors include low electricity prices and the fact that the plant was small, old, and needed an expensive upgrade to comply with federal clean air regulations. On top of all of that, the cooperative that owns the plant says it's no longer needed and won't be replaced. That troubles Borer. When power plants have shut down in the past, they've been replaced with power plants. More pressure comes from another looming federal regulation, the Clean Power Plan. If that plan is implemented, North Dakota must cut its emissions 45 percent by 2030. Many states, including North Dakota, have sued to stop the rule. If it's upheld, it won't matter if lignite mines are one mile or a hundred miles from power plants. Lignite emits more CO2 in generating electricity than harder coal. We have to come up with a solution in the next two or three years They're trying. The state of North Dakota has invested $5 million in a partnership with the lignite industry to build a zero-emission power plant that would convert lignite to natural gas and capture CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. But this plant still needs years of research and testing before it's ready to roll out in North Dakota. If that doesn't work, you know, we're going back to the drawing board, but that drawing board is empty. Back in Hazen, coal workers like Burling want to keep their jobs. The 53-year-old left a long career with the local sheriff's office more than a decade ago, eager to do away with the instability of a new boss every election. Now it's his current industry's volatility that weighs on his mind. Got to be honest, I haven't really come up with a plan B yet. Neither has the state's coal industry. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy Sisk. Donald Trump is wooing energy state voters by promising a presidency that will champion coal, promote drilling, and free frackers from federal regulations limiting oil and gas development. As state impact journalist Joe Wirtz reports for Inside Energy, oil state influencers are helping shape the platform of the Republican presidential candidate. Donald Trump delivered his first major speech on U.S. energy policy at a petroleum conference in the capital city of one of the country's most oil-rich states. The Republican presidential nominee's purpose in Bismarck, North Dakota, to get people pumped up about pumping oil and natural gas. 
Trump promised, if elected, he'd undo environmental and climate regulations that expanded under the Obama administration. We're going to revoke policies that impose unwarranted restrictions on new drilling technologies. These technologies create millions of jobs. That, Trump says, would free up the market, bringing profits to energy companies, jobs to communities, and private personal wealth to individuals. This is your treasure. And you, the American people, are entitled to share in the riches. If Trump's energy platform sounds like it was written specifically for fossil fuel companies, that's because the energy industry helped create it. The GOP candidate's stop at the May 2016 event was arranged with the help of two men helping shape Trump's energy policy. First is North Dakota Congressman Kevin Kramer. Probably the thing that resonates the most with these energy-savvy constituents of mine is his talk about regulation and and the reining in of regulations. Kramer says energy policy offers a simple way for the public to measure the effectiveness of the federal government. Much of the Mountain West is rich in minerals, but a lot of the land and wealth is controlled by the feds. Kramer says that's not the case in states like North Dakota, Texas, and Oklahoma, where fossil fuel development fuels local prosperity. That differentiation is really stark, and and it's it makes obvious that it's not the government that creates the jobs, it's the government that gets the way, in the way of the jobs. Trump is also taking energy cues from Harold Hamm, a godfather of fracking, or as Trump referred to him in a press conference after the speech. Oh, the king of energy. Hamm is the founder and CEO of Continental Resources, a pioneering producer in North Dakota's Bakken Shale. Ham is the son of Oklahoma sharecroppers, and his hardscrabble personal journey from gas station laborer to wildcatter to billionaire energy boss has given him hero status among oil field workers and corporate executives. Trump officials and Ham didn't respond to interview requests, but the oil man did speak at the Republican National Convention. Every time we can't drill well in America, terrorism is being funded. Ham is a vocal Trump supporter and advises the candidate on energy and economic issues. The Oklahoma oil man has been named as a possible Secretary of Energy if Trump wins in November. Ham's recent convention speech drove home two big themes. One, that relying on foreign oil is a security threat, but the environment isn't. Climate change isn't our biggest problem. It's Islamic terrorism. And second, that drilling is the best way for the country to reduce that threat. President Trump will fuel America's future and become the first president to achieve American energy independence. Energy to independence is just as ridiculous now as when President Nixon introduced it. Roger Stern is a faculty fellow at the University of Tulsa's School of Energy Economics, Policy and Commerce. He says total energy independence would be bad for U.S. consumers because global energy markets mean cheaper gasoline and utility bills. Trump isn't using that idea any more or less coherently than any other president or presidential hopeful. Stern says Trump and the GOP aren't the only ones sending muddled messages when it comes to energy policy. Hillary Clinton struggles to make a clear case, too. Stern says neither Republicans nor Democrats seem interested in tackling many key policy issues that could have big effects on companies and everyday Americans, such as the public health consequences of energy production and taxpayer subsidies of energy industries. For Inside Energy, I'm Joe Wirtz in Oklahoma City.
That story came to us from State Impact, Oklahoma. Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton has energy whispers with roots in fossil fuel country as well. Trevor Hauser grew up in Coleridge, Wyoming. He's part of a small team behind Clinton's energy strategy. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson spoke with Hauser about crafting energy policy in the middle of an energy bust. Hillary Clinton's energy plan, outlined on her website, basically aims to reduce our use of fossil fuels by installing half a billion solar panels, putting more fuel-efficient vehicles on the road, and building clean energy infrastructure with the goal of fighting climate change. Trevor, you are one of Clinton's energy policy advisors, and you're one of the architects of this plan. So how has your upbringing, your childhood spent in the rural West, informed your views on energy policy? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Wyoming, which, uh, you know, is both one of the country's largest energy producers and uh, the country's largest coal producer, and uh, also home to some of the country's proudest national parks and public lands. And I think both of those pieces have shaped my uh, view of energy and environmental policy. You know, I lived in Wyoming during the oil price collapse of the early 80s. And, you know, while I was a young kid at the time, you know, after that collapse, there was a large outmigration from the state. And so the narrative that existed in the state when I was growing up was largely about how do we keep young people here <laughs> post oil price collapse in the 80s. Uh, uh, it was also certainly where the role that uh, the extractive industries played in funding schools across the state, and uh, including the schools that, uh, that I went to, and that kind of central role that, uh, that oil and gas and, and the coal industry played in the state's economy. Hillary Clinton's energy plan includes $30 billion to help revitalize struggling coal communities. I've talked to many coal miners who don't want what they see as a handout from the federal government and aren't interested in a new line of work. Why would this plan work for them? Yes, we have, you know, voters have a choice in this election and and voters in coal country have a choice in this election between a candidate who is offering false promises of uh, bringing about a renaissance in U.S. coal production, pushing back market forces like the shale boom that started in 2008 that have increased competition for coal in the power sector and around the world and try to recreate a coal-based economy that we had decades ago, you know, versus a candidate that is committed to investing and in, uh, ensuring that America is competitive in the economies of the future and, uh, and is committed to ensuring that those who kept the lights on in the factories running for the past 100 years uh, play the same vital role in the 21st century economy that they played in, uh, in the 20th century economy. What I want for my home state and um, what I think the people of Wyoming are going to be increasingly looking for is what's a strategy for economic diversification that can ensure that the state isn't a one-trick pony, that it isn't overly reliant on on the commodities industry. Hillary Clinton has received far more in campaign contributions from the oil and gas industry than Donald Trump. But she had this to say during a debate in March. By the time we get through all of my conditions... I do not think there will be many places in America where fracking will continue to take place. There is a lot of public opposition to fracking, but it also supports a lot of jobs in states like Colorado, North Dakota, and here in Wyoming. So what would the oil and gas industry look like under President Clinton? 
So Secretary Clinton believes that natural gas has an important role to play in our transition to a clean energy economy. It's, it's ensuring that the public is protected and that uh, the oil and gas production is done in a safe and responsible manner, that groundwater is protected, that communities that crude trains travel through, that pipelines travel through are protected, and that methane emissions are, uh, are, are successfully uh, controlled. You know, she also believes that uh, to meet the climate challenge, to make our economy more secure, uh, that we need to reduce the amount of oil that we consume as a country. And she's set a goal to cut U.S. oil consumption uh, by a third through more efficient cars and trucks, more efficient ships and boilers. So right now, we're in the middle of a price slump for coal, oil, and gas all at the same time. Communities are bleeding jobs. States are slashing their budgets. You, as someone who grew up in Wyoming, have seen this firsthand, as we were talking about earlier. Have you seen the state changing or diversifying over the years? Have you seen any signs of change? Uh, not enough uh, over the during the time that I was growing up. I mean, my you know, if we had been making the investments in economic diversification in the '90s that we needed to make, uh, we wouldn't be in as bad of a position as a state today. Uh, we wouldn't have been as dependent on extractive industries today. I think there's growing recognition in Wyoming and other coal communities about the need to invest in economic diversification now. In Wyoming, there's the you know, investments in the integrated test center, large new data centers that are taking advantage of high altitude cooling. Uh, so I think there's a growing recognition of the need for economic diversification and a growing level of political support. Where would you say energy and environment issues fall on her list of priorities? Yeah, I think, you know, elections are about contrast and, uh, and about friction. And, you know, and this is an issue where not so long ago there wasn't that much difference between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, the Republican Party platform in 2008 had a whole section on climate change. By 2012, the Republican Party had stripped all mention of climate change from its platform. And uh, this year, the Republican Party has nominated a man who believes that, China, that climate change was a hoax invented by the Chinese. And that's a very different vision for, uh, for the future than, uh, than the Democrats and then Secretary Clinton is putting forward. You know, she believes that rather than putting forward false promises about recreating an energy economy of the past, that we need to make investments to ensure that the U.S. is the clean energy superpower of the 21st century, not China or Europe. Uh, and, uh, and so that contrast, I think, is indicative of, of the broader contrast between the two candidates on their approach to, uh, to the future and to what we need to do to, to uh, get the economy working for everybody. So thanks for joining me, Trevor. Great. Thanks very much, Lee. That was Inside Energy's Lee Patterson speaking with Trevor Hauser, an energy policy advisor to Hillary Clinton. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. In a moment, we will return with a preview of the upcoming University of Wyoming's cultural program season. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Caroline Ballard. The University of Wyoming is kicking off another school year. 
and with it comes a new season of visiting performers through the school's cultural programs. Janelle Fletcher is the Director of Fine Arts Outreach and Cultural Programs, and she joined me to preview some of the fall season acts. We're actually starting this year with something that in the 30-year history of cultural programs has never been done, and that is comedian Paula Poundstone, which everyone that listens to uh, Wyoming Public Radio is probably quite familiar with. She is a frequent guest on the show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Um, but prior to that, even, she was known nationally as a comedian and um, a great improviser. So we're lucky to have her on September the 16th. Following that, we will do the Repertory Dance Theater, which um, it comes out of Salt Lake City, Utah. We will do that in Laramie High School Auditorium, so a unique opportunity to see the new high school auditorium in Laramie and a dance company that is currently featuring one of the University of Wyoming dance program graduates. That's very exciting, uh, a unique opportunity for Laramie audiences to see someone come home in a professional setting. After that, we will head toward the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet, in October, they are extraordinarily well-known worldwide, extremely proficient in what it is that they do, and have some Grammy Awards. So I think people are pretty familiar with their name and excited about them. And then uh, November 3rd, we moved to the Cashore Marionettes, and that is a first for cultural programs as well. We've never done marionettes or puppetry. Um, Joseph Cashore actually invented a new way of operating and building marionettes. So he will give a workshop in that and then a performance that evening and it there is no uh, spoken word or lyric and it's it's quite beautiful I encourage people to look that up on YouTube uh, following that we will have Daniel Sue and he is an 18 year old pianist he recently just won the junior Gilmore and the Gilmore competition is a competition for pianists that they don't know they're competing in until they've won. In other words, the jurors um, go and listen to a lot of people play live, and these pianists don't know that the jurors in the, are in the audience, and then they award the prizes. So it's quite an honor in that it is a sort of blind award in a way. And then to finish out our fall season, we've got the really fun, really quirky ukulele orchestra of Great Britain. They will do a holiday program. They're all phenomenal players. But what is unique about this opportunity is that they have a ukulele play along with audience members. So very near in the future, we will you know, send out a call to those who are interested in playing and you bring your ukulele and we will get you music and you will play along with them on a few numbers from your seat. So um, they're also extremely comical. So it's a, it's a really great way to sort of end our fall season and, and kick off a, a joyous or what we hope to be joyous holiday season. Now, are any of these events sold out already? Not yet. Um, currently, we are on sale for season tickets and all manner of season ticket packages. The box office can explain all of the options there. And we are also on sale for Paula Poundstone individual tickets. Everything else, if you want an individual ticket to any of the rest of the stuff, fall or spring, will go on sale September 19th. Is there one act in particular you are looking forward to? Oh, I'm really excited about Paula Poundstone. Um, personally, I'm a big Wait, Wait fan. So I'm very excited about that. But really, we're very excited about everything this season because it's it's unique and un unusual. And um, we're reaching into a lot of genres and areas that we've never in 30 years touched before. So um, we're really broadening the scope of what people get to see here, right, right here in Laramie, that is nationally and internationally recognized. What do you think people will be most surprised about this season? I think the marionettes are going to take people by surprise, um, for sure. It's it's sort of hauntingly beautiful, and um, I, it's again not something that's very common. We don't see puppetry 
live very often. I'm not sure I've ever seen it here. So that's going to take people by surprise. And I think also the, the proficiency of the musicians in the ukulele orchestra, when combined with their humor, will be really a, a treat. How do you find these people and these different acts? That's a great question. Um, there is a committee that helps steer the cultural program series. And a lot of suggestions come from them, from what they are listening to, from what they've heard about. Um, And then I go to conferences and visit with agents and managers, and we learn what's coming through the area. A lot of this has to be block booked. In order to make it affordable, they need to be on the road on their way through, which reduces the fee. So it's a whole conglomeration of, of ways that we come to find who we can book. And of, of course, there's the challenge of avoiding football game Saturdays on occasion, uh, or always actually, but uh, UW holidays, other holidays, not going too close to when school starts so that people have a, an adjustment period or being too late in the spring. Because, you know, people in Laramie, especially our climate, they tend to have cabin fever. So it's a whole manner of things that we sort of consider before we bring acts in. And how far in advance are you contacting with these people? A year. So typically by October or November of the year prior, we will have booked the next. So in other words, by October or November of this year, we will be done with 1718. And how do you bring them here? I know you mentioned that partly it's who's coming through. So how do you attract them to the University of Wyoming? Well, um, typically an offer does it uh, for money. Um, But a lot of people, we do have to convince that this is a really great place to come. They've never been before. And uh, the really great news about Wyoming is that I've never met an artist who has has not, after visiting for the first time, fallen completely in love with the charm of of Laramie and the beauty of Wyoming, and typically they're willing to and very excited to come back. What do you think cultural programming and these kinds of events and acts, what do you think it brings to Laramie as a town and to the state? You know, we're really fortunate that this series is nationally regarded. A lot of people actually don't know that, and that's a really lucky thing to have in a small town like Laramie. But another nice thing that this series brings is big city caliber, big city sort of series Uh, for lack of a better way to put that, here in a small town. So you don't have to drive to Denver to get those experiences. And a lot of people who move to Laramie from those cities who have gone to school in them or lived in them previously really look for those opportunities because they've grown up around that cultural activity. And so we're really fortunate to be able to provide that right here in Laramie without the expense of driving to Denver. So we really feel lucky to have the opportunity to give that to the community, both the university and the community as a whole, as well as surrounding communities. We see a lot of people from Cheyenne and Casper um, in the Front Range as well. Janelle Fletcher is the Director of Fine Arts Outreach and Cultural Programs. Thanks so much for making time today, Janelle. Thank you. listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the entire program or individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also sign up for our podcast on that website or get it from iTunes. If you get the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate it and write a comment. Anna Rader is our web editor. All of our reporters are on Twitter, and we'd love it if you'd like our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page. As a reminder, we always like to hear about good story ideas. You can also submit those through our website or Facebook page. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News. Music